Hi, and welcome to the Project Sebastian podcast. My name is Christopher Vellana, and I'll be your host today as we discuss the challenges of being a special needs parent. You see, my son Sebastian has Batten disease CLN8. Like you, I knew nothing about this horrible disease, and I had nowhere to turn to or no one to talk to. Even after having countless tests done, discussions with doctors, a wife at the time, family members, I felt more lost than ever. I was scared all the time, and alone, or so it seemed. After the final diagnosis, almost five years later, I took to the internet to create a podcast to discuss and talk about the very fears and the frustrations that have destroyed a family. Loving my boys was not enough. What I found out was that I am not alone. There are a great number of special needs families out there that are struggling just like me. Also, as we explore, discover, and discuss, we will find that the good, the bad, and the ugly is in all childhood diseases. So sit back and relax and listen as my guests, people like you, such as families, friends, advocates, and doctors, vent and share their experiences along their journey. We will hear the triumphs and the tragedies, and you will get all the support that you may be looking for today on the Project Sebastian podcast. Thank you for joining us on another great episode of the Project Sebastian podcast. I am your host, Christopher Valona, director of Project Sebastian, where we interview families, friends, doctors, and caregivers about you know, dealing with uh, childhood illness. And today's special guest is Kristen Gray, who is the uh, Chris, would you say you're the CEO and the director of uh, your foundation? Co-founder, you know, I'm there in the partnership with my I see. husband. So. I see. And, and tell, Co-founder. Okay, what is the name of your foundation again? The Charlotte and Gwyneth Gray Foundation to Cure Batten Disease. That's great. And um, tell us again, uh, where are you living these days? Uh, the Pacific Palisades, California. I see. Yes. Married to Gordon Gray. Yes. We have two daughters. I do. And, um, you started this foundation, uh, what year and why? We started the foundation in June of 2015 after hearing uh, devastating news of a diagnosis of our oldest daughter, Charlotte. Um, she was diagnosed in March of 2015 with Batten disease CLN6. So um, we were told it was rare, it was incurable, and to prepare our home for wheelchairs and to kiss our daughter every day. Oh, and that my younger daughter, Gwyneth, might have a 25% chance of also being diagnosed. Um, which three weeks later she was. Um, and so we were off to the races to kind of change that trajectory and reality um, and started our foundation in June of 2015, a few months later, officially. That's great. Um, is this something that uh, you had heard about before? Is this something that your friends had like said, oh, hey, you might want to get your family tested for this? I mean, how, how, how did any of this come about? What did you notice about your daughter, about why something was wrong? Um, Charlotte was a typical kid, uh, met all of her milestones. Um, and really up until I'd say three and a half, um, she was on par with her peers and in some areas, you know, developing faster than her peers. She was swimming across a pool at two and a half by herself on her stomach and on her back. She was doing gymnastics. She was playing soccer with the, you know, local YMCA league. We played t-ball, um, and you know, everything was great. There were a, a couple things that I noticed. Um, she was stuffing her mouth with food which to which I responded with calling in a, a nutritionist to find out why she was overstuffing her mouth. Um, come to find out later that was more of a sensory issue um, where she wasn't feeling the sensation of her mouth being full. Um, and then she started getting stuck on her speech. She went into a two day a week program at two years, nine months. And at the start of the program, she was kind of at the head of her class. And at the end of the program, everyone had caught up to her and some had surpassed, which I thought was strange, even though it was, you know, my first experience as a parent. Um, and the teacher just said, look, go home, work with her a little bit on manipulatives, fine motor, she'll be fine. 
I hired a speech and language pathologist to come and do an evaluation. She said, she's not therapy ready. Go do some OT in the gym, you know, come back to me. But, you know, there were definitely some things that were, you know, standing out towards the end of 2014 that I found, um, you know, concerning. So in September, we started going down the course of seeking neurologists opinion um, just to, you know, make sure that we had covered and checked all of our boxes as far as specialists were concerned. Um, and that was a slow, as I'm sure you might remember, grueling process with neurology. It's, there's no rush to do any testing unless there's like a, an eminent need. Sure. Um, yeah. And so Charlotte in December of 2014, Christmas Eve, tripped over some packages when she went to brace herself and get up, her arm tremored, which I thought was really odd. And we had already been engaging with a neurologist. So I told the neurologist about that. And she had already given a preliminary diagnosis of, you know, mild autism with Charlotte. Because, you know, if you check two of the five boxes, whether it be speech, fine motor, gross motor, attention, et cetera, whatever the five boxes are, that they automatically receive this diagnosis. So my husband and I knew that that wasn't what was wrong with her. And so when I mentioned that arm tremor, she said, oh, yeah, some kids with arm tremors have some tone issues. And I said, she's never had tone issues. Fast forward to January flu season. She gets the flu. She goes on Tamiflu. She had six tremors in a day. And so uh, that- Kristen, um, let, me, let me ask you something, Kristen. At what, at what age was that first episode where you, it was the, how old was she? She was, so she was four when she was diagnosed. So she had just turned four, December 5th. And then Christmas Eve was the first arm tremor. When you say tremors, that's not the same thing as a seizure at this point. Well, what, what it, what I know now, it's like a myo, it's myoclonus or right. some sort of clonus. Um, and, and, and for our listeners, could you break that down to layman's term when you say myoclonus? I mean, it's like, it looks like a, it looks like a, sorry. It just looks like a, um, a shaking of the arm. I don't, I don't really know how, it's not like a, a rapid, um, you know, body jolting convulsion. It's just a, almost like a break in the, in the, um, the movement. I see. Kind of I see. I see. I know. Sometimes I, I forget uh, you're very intelligent and, and sometimes I just need you to answer like a mom because some of our listeners are not uh, at where you are at this stage of your life. And unfortunately they're just kind of looking for like, you know, basics. But uh, as we go on, you have to understand something about uh, Kristen is that she's uh, extremely intelligent because of the experiences she has, but she also, um, comes from a, a very high mindset, and uh, we'll get into that in a minute. So we're at Christmas. We have these mild tremors, uh, kind of like the shaking, um, and you're talking to these neurologists, which is just, you know, God forbid, it's just it's mind-boggling because you just don't understand how they don't know a lot of the stuff that you think they should know, and you're just not getting what you want. You're frustrated at this point? Yes, very, very. So we have the January six in a day, and then they immediately called for an EEG. So I remember um, going in for our EEG and coming out with the results right before we were gonna do our ski week trip. We always go up to Sun Valley, Idaho for ski week, and this was Charlotte's opportunity to go right into ski school this time, and we were super excited. And we left that EEG with Charlotte on a low dose of Keppra because she was having some mild seizure activity. They told me it was um, occipital discharges and hypersynchrony, which I knew nothing about. What is occipital discharges and hypersynchrony? Right. Really, it was just an abnormal EEG. Fine, okay. So we're gonna put her on a low dose of Keppra. Again, reassuring me, this is normal. Kids with autism, you know, have seizure activity. Um, so we go to Sun Valley. I remember just feeling defeated and sad and, you know, looking at my daughter in this kind of new light and feeling very protective and scared and not really knowing um, kind of how to navigate this new 
world that we were entering and knowing upon return of this trip that she was going to have an MRI to give us a better, clearer understanding of what was going on. So. That's a lot. That's a lot to handle. I mean, my God, to go just from something so simple as tripping to <laughs> seems like multiple doctors into having some sort of like, it's almost like you're chasing this, this fear of the unknown. Yeah, but I don't think in my wildest of wild fears did I ever think it would be what it ultimately was. So, so we come back from Sun Valley, Charlotte gets her MRI, and I, I remember it vividly because it was on the eve of a 40th birthday weekend for one of my best friends from college in Palm Springs. And she's the one you really need to show up for. You have to have your, your game face on. So on a Friday, the neurologist calls us and says, I don't want you to freak out and I don't want you to look up anything, but I'm going to tell you based on the preliminary review of her MRI what it could be. And she told us it could be leukodystrophy. And so I'm sure now at this point, Chris, you've heard of leukodystrophy. It's another, um, you know, childhood rare disease, pediatric rare disease. It has really the same course of action, similar course of action as, as Batten disease. But she asked us not to look it up. Of course we did. Um, and we freaked out. And um, Ironically, the family from Lorenzo's Oil lives in the Palisades. So that was the first person that we called. Before we got, you know, any sort of final, you know, had to go through a radiologist for a final potential diagnosis. Um, my brother happened to work in Glendale at the hospital there and offered to have another radiologist review her records. So I remember on Friday in rush hour traffic driving from the Palisades to Glendale to sit down in the radiologist's office and have him review Charlotte's MRI. And um, he wasn't as confident that it was a leukodystrophy, but he said it could be, you know, white matter, gray matter, sometimes they look similar, but I was still hanging on to the hope that it wasn't that. Again, not knowing that it was something just as horrible. Um, so I obviously called my friend and said, not coming to your birthday, at least tonight until we get some more information on this. I need to figure it out. Um, let's see. I picked up smoking at that very moment. I bought myself a pack of cigarettes and smoked nice. pretty much the pack of cigarettes in the next 24 hours because yeah. of stress. I haven't smoked since, but just to give you a little color into my into my <laughs> mental state at that point. I don't know what's worse is uh, you picking up smoking or the or the doctor saying, "Hey, don't look any of this up." Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. which is the worst thing a doctor could tell right. a, a mother or a father about a child. So, right. but I mean, I think the lesson for us was is we immediately got to work and we we treated it as a leukodystrophy immediately we were on the phone with Joanne Kurtzberg and in, in Duke talking about bone cord blood transplants you know there was more medical advancements in leukodystrophy at that time um and so there was hope and that's really what kind of propelled us um forward over the next year really to kind of start our journey once we officially received the diagnosis and um, and so yeah. that 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 official diagnosis was not the the leukodystrophy that was how did you ascertain did you have to have another test was it genetic testing or yeah so we had to do a, a full exome gene sequencing um so all four of us our blood was drawn wow, and, that's that's incredible know, yeah you know how that works um <laughs> Yep. And we got a call. Oh, this is another colored part of the story. So we asked how long the test would take to get back. And the, the geneticist at UCLA said, uh, could take up to three months. And we said, if it's a leukodystrophy, we don't have three months. So we need the test. What's the quickest the test could come back? He said, three weeks. We said, well, then we need it back in three weeks. He said, we can't guarantee that. Then my husband started flexing his who he knows muscles and said, we will get that test back in three weeks. Um, I was sent on an errand to the UCLA campus with Gwen in an ergo, which is, you know, the little baby carrying thing that you wear. And I hunted down the geneticist's office a week later to check on the progress of our test. 
Um, thankfully, three weeks later, we did get a call, but the call was to come into his office so that he could deliver the news. And at that point, we knew that the news was not good. Um, and we sat in a room with no windows. I remember across the hallway, there was a, a child in a, um, an adaptive wheelchair, um, which I now recognize very clearly, but at the time it looked very scary. Um, the child was non-ambulatory, non-verbal, and it just was this very scary glimpse into what my future could be or our future could be. Um, and the geneticist sat down with us with a counselor and gave us a packet of information and said, your daughter, Charlotte has Batten disease. She's, you know, there's only one other person in the world that has it. They live in India and here's some information about it. And that's when he told us to go prepare our home for wheelchairs, et cetera, et cetera. So at that point in time, you probably were kind of like sitting around going, what the fuck? Yes. And like, how is this happening? Um, going back to your husband, you said you asked your husband to flex his muscle. What, what does Mr. Uh, Mr. Gordon Gray do again? He is a film producer. I see. I see. So he called who's who to help out to get some, some information. He just, he just wanted the people that were running the show to know that he could push, a, push a little bit harder and he was going to use whatever leverage he needed to, to get it pushed. And, and did, that's what that, we did. Did that work for you at that time? Well, we got our results back in three weeks. So I, I would say that it was either dumb luck or, you know, someone made a call for us and made sure that we, you know, got the information. I, I can't confirm whether or not that was the case. I just know that, you know, between me running on campus a couple times and knocking on his door and sitting in his office crying with my youngest daughter um, and Gordon calling him probably daily that he wanted us off his back, <laughs> I would imagine. Well, uh, from what I've heard, Gordon is a force to be reckoned with. And, and as a special needs father myself, I understand that whole repertoire. We just, we need to get the information now and we are going to sit on your chest until you tell us. So, um, so you get this horrible, this horrible diagnosis, the correct diagnosis at this time. Batten CLN six. Yes. So we run downstairs. I remember being outside the UCLA medical plaza calling Joanne Kurtzberg and saying, it's not a leukodystrophy, it's Batten disease. And ironically, she had already worked with a few Batten patients on cord blood transplants. So that was our first, or I guess our second um, opportunity for hope because she already knew a bit about the disease, not CLN6 per se, but a couple, CLN2 and CLN3, she had already seen a couple children. So, um, so then we started down the path with her, uh, which ultimately led to us not moving forward due to the risks involved. But you know, it led us to other researchers and scientists and professionals in the field, which ultimately led to us, you know, creating and signing a contract with Nationwide Children's Hospital. And, and what did that do for you when you, when you said you, you couldn't go down that one road, but then you're going to sign a contract with somebody that may have the road? Well, I mean, we did, we were, Gordon and I were on the phone. I, we kind of divided and conquered. I took on like, I'm going to talk to other families that had children or have children with Batten disease and kind of what their course was. So I spoke at great length with Tracy Van Houten, with Noah's Hope. I spoke um, to the Kennecotts. I spoke with the Beyond Batten Foundation with Charlotte and Craig Benson. Um, I obviously spoke to the BDSRA who put me in touch with some other families um, and really gathering information from them on who they worked with, who are the specialists in the field, who do we need to be talking to, who don't we need to be talking to, kind of the do's and don'ts. Um, and based on that information, then Gordon and I would divide and conquer and call all those individuals. Um, you know, there was some preliminary work in New Zealand with the sheep and CLN6, and everyone thinks is, that's who, you know, did all of our research. That's not who did our, all of our research. That's just who kind of led us, you know, to keep furthering our, our medical uh, preclinical research path. Wow. That's a lot. That's a lot yeah. in this short amount of time. Um, 
when we come back from this little commercial break, we're going to talk to Kristen about, you know, the struggles associated with being a uh, stay-at-home mom, uh, not with one, but possibly both children when we come right back. Today's podcast is sponsored by CSG Incorporated, the only personal consulting company that you'll need. Our passion is designed around helping others. With over 30 years of experience in a number of different industries, CSG can put you on the most efficient path of success. Our consultants will help you level up quickly, specializing in CBD, childhood illness, and addiction recovery areas, just to name a few. Call us today at 818-724-5987 to get your free 15-minute call. At CSG, we don't waste time, we create it. And we're back with Kristen Gray, co-founder of the uh, Charlene Gwyneth uh, Foundation to Raise Awareness for Baton Disease. Um, back in 2017, I actually had lunch with this special lady, uh, along with my then, uh, well, my current ex-wife <laughs> and uh, our neurologist. And we started this journey um, to find out what was going on with our child, um, for Batten disease. So Kristen, now we have this, this great establishment. We have some research going on. We have some uh, other family foundations that you're just constantly talking to, just doing your research and just digging and digging and digging. You wind up at Children's Hospital in Ohio. Who was the team member there that kind of made you feel like, okay, we're, we're going to do something different? Brian Kaspar um, had just successfully completed um, another gene therapy trial in a rare pediatric disease called spinal muscular atrophy using AAV9, the same technology that a, a lot of these other researchers and scientists were talking about and pursuing. Um, and we called him in, I think, June or July. I think our first conversation with him was in July. And Ironically, he had a daughter named Charlotte, so he was kind of pulled to the cause just based on that alone. But also, you know, the FDA was very familiar with the work he had done. Um, he could use a lot of that preclinical research and apply it for um, an IND approval with the FDA. And he also was, you know, we were very... Um, very specific on how fast he needed to move and he was up for the task. Um, and so we signed a contract with him in August of 2015. And my expectation was, and you know, I think everyone has these kind of lofty expectations was that, you know, we have a clinical trial up and running in December of 2015. So that's a, that's a basically a six month window. Um, we ultimately um, went to trial in March of 2016, which was a, exactly a year from Charlotte's diagnosis. Um, but we believed in Brian. He worked hard. He worked aggressively. His team at Nationwide was aggressive. Um, and I think the other factor that really played into the success of the preclinical work and the, you know, the ex expediting of, of that was that they collaborated with our other researchers and other institutions at Sanford, Sioux Falls, Idaho, um, Michelle Hastings at Rosalind. Um, you know, we had three different research institutions working together for the same cause. Um, and they divided and conquered in a way seems, that you don't see often. It seems very different, uh, what you hear about uh, medicine, people sharing research. Um, it's nice to hear that uh, those people were working, you know, unified uh, in helping the cause. And when you're, when you're talking about doing all these different types of testing, were you, were you trying to just figure out exactly when and where this horrible disease began? Or were you trying to find a purpose of maybe, maybe a cure or what, what can be done? Is that, is that why we do anything? We I just, but. The where and why didn't matter at that point. You know, there was enough research in bat disease world, natural history wise, with the Batten diseases combined, there was enough research on that. We needed to know how and what we were gonna do. So we had three avenues we were pursuing. Small molecule, which was happening at Sanford, 
gene therapy, which was happening at this point now, it was happening, you know, via nationwide and, and the Casper lab there, um, and regenerative medicine, which, um, you know, we had a guy, another Palisadian, who was the head of regenerative medicine at Cedar sinai Hospital. He's the one that actually introduced us to Brian Kaspar, and we ultimately were doing regenerative medicine work with him. So we didn't know which was going to happen first, but we wanted, for me, in, in my logical mind, I knew that we needed to slow down the progression of the disease. So whether it was an already approved supplement, curcumin, you know, all of these things that these families have been trying, you know, we even went down the stem cells ink trial to see if there was a way, you know, to reinvent that, but the, the, you know, the data wasn't strong enough. And we knew, you know, after reviewing that the FDA would never approve it. Um, we were trying anything. We were throwing everything that stuck up against the wall and whatever happened first, we were going to move forward with because we knew that Charlotte was declining fast and, you know, at the time we didn't know of really any other families. Um, shortly, I don't know, a few months after signing the contract, we were introduced to a few other CLN6 families. And so then our cause was greater than just our daughters. Sure. So moving forward, then we have, we have a lot of people, a lot of moving parts. And of course, I, I, uh, I understand that whole mindset where it's like, it doesn't matter anymore. We just got to keep going. So at what point in time happens next about uh, Gwyneth? Was that something that... Uh, For diagnosis? Right. Was that... Uh, and three weeks after Charlotte's. Oh, wow. Okay. Yes, we were already fighting for both girls, fundraising for both girls, fundraising for CLN6 from June on. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that's incredible just to have not one but two um, and to have pretty much you against the world trying to save not one but two children. Yeah. Um, so did you, did you find yourself like alone at that point in time or were you just surrounded by people or did you, did you feel like things were moving in a, in a positive direction while you saw your daughter's decline? Well, I didn't see any, I was never worried about, I mean, I, I never thought Gwen would be diagnosed to be honest because she presented so differently than Charlotte did. But um, I wasn't worried about Gwen because I knew I had all this time with her. I knew I had at least until she was three and a half, four, she was 18 months at the time of diagnosis, to get something done for her. My, my main concern in my immediate concern was Charlotte. And in, in the beginning, the, the progression, the disease progression was slow. You know, and I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know how slow or how fast it was going to be, but I knew we needed to get something. We needed to get it done quickly. Um, so yes, of course you feel alone. You feel isolated. You feel angry at the world. Like why my family, why is this happening to my children? Is there a God? I had a really horrible fight with the man upstairs. Um, and, but I have an amazing family my immediate family and my husband's immediate family are all local and uh, a brother who is extremely supportive and ex extensive amounts of aunts and uncles and cousins and, and a community that really lifted us up uh, in a time that we really needed it to help us raise funds um, to fund the research and, and to fund the potential treatment for our girls and other children like them. So um, while I felt alone, I was supported by hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, you know, locally. And then because of our um, very public announcement of the diagnosis of our girls and, and our efforts to raise money for a cure, we did get a lot of publicity, which led to really worldwide support. And so I had people from Finland and Iceland and the UK and all over the place um, reaching out with their support. The girls were sent packages from all over the world with love and art and different ways that people were trying to raise money for our foundation. It was really heartwarming. So in the midst of feeling alone, I did not feel alone. Wow. I, um, that's amazing. You know, I just, uh, I remember now kind of backtracking when I first met you, the 2015, 2016, 2017, and watching just in the past, just all the news clips and, and the stuff that you guys did publicly. It's just, uh, it's, it's amazing that uh, you, you held it together 
and that you had that support and you had the family and the friends and financially draining, of course. And um, um, having all of that happened, you got done something pretty fast. Can you talk about the first clinical trial for Batten disease out there? Yeah, so um, the research was looking strong. Um, we kind of, we did an unorthodox way of preclinical work where, you know, usually you do a, a go, no go. Like if this step happens and it looks positive, you go to the next step and fund that. We kind of threw everything out at once, funded it all and hoped that it all worked out. And thankfully for us and, you know, for these other CLN6 children, it, it did. Um, and in March of 2015, uh, we head to clinical trial. We actually moved to Columbus at the end of February, hoping that this was going to happen uh, in March, and it did. Um, and um, Charlotte was treated, I think it was March, I don't even know what the date is, but March of 2015. 2016, sorry, 2016, a year after her diagnosis. So which was, um, I mean, I remember the day before, was it the day before getting a call? Cause there were a lot of legal documents you had to sign so that you sign your life away. Basically, you know, you put your trust in their hands. And I said, I don't give a shit what I sign. I'll sign anything. I just want my child treated. I just want this started. Um, and so yeah, that happened in March. So how much time had passed between concept to application for August, August? We signed with the Casper lab and March we were in clinical trial. That's incredible. Uh, that's pretty fast. Um, any red tape with uh, the powers that be, I mean, how do you get that done? I mean, no, I think we were, I think, you know, cause Brian had just been through it. Dr. Caspar, we were very, um, specific about our path and we we engaged the fda from the very beginning for august we had our first call with the fda here's what we're doing here's what we'd like to do here's our preclinical research thus far what do we need to do to get this done and they kind of gave us the building blocks and the stepping stones that we needed to get it done and to get it done fast and they were included all along the way in our process were they were they supportive or were they challenging yeah. No, I mean, they were, they were very supportive. Of course, there were things that they needed more information on this. Um, they wanted more data on this. They wanted, you know, whatever it was, and we gave it to them. And does that normally take that amount of time, or was that just like, I don't know, maybe a godsend that we were able to get that up and running based on the fact that we've heard now, not only from you, but multiple guests, that Batten disease is just extremely voracious. It destroys the body very quickly. So... Was this a normal type of uh, accelerant for the clinical trial? Or, I mean, is this a normal time frame? I mean, I don't think I'm one to say what's normal and what's not normal, but I think you could speak from your own experience and the other experiences of other families within the Batten disease world that it is not, has not been the case for a lot of other people, um, unfortunately. You know, True. you think that you, you, you know, pave, hopefully pave the way to make life easier, like families before us did, to make our journey easier based on the lessons learned. And that's what we hope to do for families like yours and families like other families. Um, but unfortunately, that hasn't been the case. And it hasn't been the case um, for a multitude of reasons. Sometimes it's because the medical model doesn't work for that particular disease indication. Um, you, you, you're confronted with hurdles like um, having antibodies already to the AAV9 that's already been approved that the you know FDA recognizes and is comfortable with for safety measures. It could be that you don't have the funding in place. Um, it could be it, that the scientists are spread too thin and maybe not making it a priority. I don't really know. Um, I know that we in a very unlucky world that we've been living, we got very lucky with the science and the fundraising and the ultimate um, result. So would you say that uh, your girls were the first um, clinical trial that had gone from zero to that type of notoriety um, that quick so far in this specific area of medical research? and 
can you I can say for Batten disease yes I don't know for other rare diseases I don't know how long their process was for gauchers or for San Filippo or for GAN or for you know Retz or Duchenne I don't know what their processes have have been so I can't speak to that but I know for Batten disease specifically yes uh, it was far more rapid than some of the other stuff what year were both of your daughters um, treated? And can you talk about the procedure? 2016. Um, yeah, so it's, it's well, you wouldn't know because you're a man, but it's like getting an epidural or I guess <laughs> a spinal tap, right? Um, they go into the lumbar region, lower lumbar region of the spine. Um, they have taken what's called an AAV9 adenoid associated virus. It's like a flu virus, common cold virus. They've cut off the bad pathology. They inject, which has to be a certain size, another another roadblock for families. The gene has to be a specific size to fit into this AAV9 capsid. And they inject it into the lower lumbar region of the spine. You're on a tilt table for about 10 minutes. You're tilted upside down, not completely, but uh, so that the... AAV9 virus and gene go through the cerebral spinal fluid and into um, the brain. And then it's supposed to kick out a correct copy, in our case, CLN6, into the brain with a promoter that keeps promoting and lasting for up to 50 years. Um, the goal is to hit you know, 30 to 40% of the neurons to be effective. Um, unfortunately, though, there's no way of really knowing how many neurons it hit. Uh, how long it's going to last, how well the promoter's working. You know, you, there's just no way to test for that. You can't take another genetic test and go, oh, now I have the good copy of CLN6. Um, right. But, well, yeah. So, um, pretty much a first. It's impressive, uh, exciting, and scary. It must have been as a mother. Very scary, yeah. Right. You don't know how your child is going to react Right. So what, what Kristen is describing is um, something that's happening now and is getting improved upon. It's called gene therapy replacement. And um, I, for one, and I've talked to a lot of other people, and we believe that gene therapy is going to change the face of how people do medicine. And uh, Kristen right here is uh, one of the pioneers of getting it done. Um, that's incredible. How is it working right now, in your opinion, for your two daughters? Well, it's very subjective. I would say that generally speaking, if you're going to talk about, you know, 14 patients we've treated uh, to date, the foundation is funded and treated, um, that the younger children that are asymptomatic or have very mild symptoms are doing better than those children that went in um, heavily symptomatic. Um, There's no, and we were told this from the beginning, there's no, uh, you know, putting in new neurons into the brain. Like this is going to, they're gonna recover from this. There is the notion of neuroplasticity and for those children that have lost skill that there's an opportunity to regain and relearn and um, you know, cause it was once there. Um, but we knew that there wasn't a recovery of those neurons already damaged and lost. Um, we were just hopeful that, you know, in Charlotte's case that she could make new connections in the brain and, and regain some skill that, that was lost. Um, and I would say that based on natural history, she's doing better than natural history. You know, she's nine years old. She's still able to stand with assistance. Could she take a couple steps? Probably, but I, I've stopped pushing that because it's, you know, the reality or my, my reality and hope for her of walking again has, has shifted quite a bit. I mean, that's part of being a parent in this disease is you keep altering you know, your, your goals and your reality for your children, um, based on how they present every day and and based on any new information that you get. Um, she's still symptomatic. Um, she still, you know, suffers from seizures. Her seizures are quite mild, but they're still seizures. No parent wants to see their child deal with that. Um, but you know, a lot of these things are treatable and trial and error. We're trying to find ways to tackle the symptoms associated with the disease. Um, but you know, she's a healthy weight. She's happy. 
um, you know, that's all I can say. Gwyneth so, is doing much better. I mean, Gwen is almost seven and still walking and talking. Um, so definitely some benefit, even, even as small as there are, if you can see as a mom, I know it's probably very biased, but you could see the difference between when she had no help to where now she had had this amazing opportunity. You see a little bit of benefit, yes? Yeah, I mean, but she still progressed. The disease still progressed post-gene therapy. It's not like she was without loss after. It wasn't like the treatment halted everything. And, you know, I look at videos of her. I don't like to look at them immediately after because I don't think it's a fair representation because you've got the prednisone and the steroids, the super drug that, are, that, that kind of plays into their um, almost revival. Um, but if you look, you know, a few months later, you know, into the fall after she was treated, she was still sitting independently, you know, with someone behind her just in case she lost her balance. She was still taking steps. She was vocalizing more. You know, you could hear her words um, amongst other, you know, mumblings. You could hear things. Um, I, I think she was happier. Um, less seizure activity. She was eating via mouth, even though it was challenging. Like, you know, we were still feeding her, you know, normally. She's since on a G-tube now because it just didn't feel safe and it was taking so long to feed her. Um, now she's at a healthy weight. I mean, it changed my life in a positive way and hers too, because she's at, at a healthier weight, has the fluid she needs, you know, and the nourishment she needs. But it's just, you know, it hasn't stopped the beast. The beast is still present. And, you know, how how long the gene therapy will work for her is unknown. So we're constantly fighting for new complementary treatments um, and looking for alternative ways to support and aid in her symptom management and also, you know, neuronal health. Right. So you're saying that this is not a cure at I this mean, point. I, it's not for me to say. Right. I think, I think, you know, you could see a child very young, potentially at a year. I think the, in the protocol, they had to be, um, you know, they couldn't be treated uh, under a year of age, but we've had children quite young and the, the outcome could be far greater. But I think once the damage is done, um, it's a slippery slope. And I don't know, um, I don't know, I don't have the answers to that. But I know that, you know, she's, she's living a better life than a nine-year-old untreated. Would you do anything different? Um, I would have, before I got married and had kids, I would have done an exome gene sequencing with my husband, but I had no reason to, because there right. is no one in my family or his family ever in right. the history of this with that disease. Right. And, and most, and most of us who actually go down the aisle, we don't sit there and have a genetic test. But I it's, recommend it now to everyone in my family. Members. Oh yeah. Yeah, no, I do. I do it now too. And know, talk know what you're know what you're dealing with with yourself and then once you decide you pick a partner know what they're dealing with so then you can i mean there are ways to get around it it's not like we can't have children speaking of which that don't have that disease i'm about to have one four weeks from now so you know oh i was just gonna ask you how is your relationship currently with your husband so i guess it's all good it's good yeah well that's fantastic congratulations when are you due uh end of april so in a few weeks. And so I'm, I'm sure that you and Gordon went back to the genetics doctor and had another testing again for, can, can you test in utero? You can test in utero if you know what you're testing for. They okay. call the probe and they test specifically for that, but you can also just do IVF and not get pregnant until you know you're going to be pregnant with a non-batten child. I mean, doesn't, doesn't pre, pre, pro, what is the word preclude us preclude us from other rare random things that happen i mean there could be some spontaneous mutation hopefully god hopefully not but um we know that it has eliminated batten disease from our list of worries for this child that's um that's incredible i mean were you were you were you hoping to have another child at one point in time were you thinking you could never have a healthy child or was this just something you were like i'm just gonna live my life I was two and done after the girls. That's all we wanted, really, to be honest. I didn't 
you know, have some like hankering for more children. But after Charlotte was diagnosed, I think I went to see an IVF doctor like three months later because I wanted to know what my options were because the, our future was so unknown or their future was so unknown. You know, I mean, you have to, I don't go to the dark side very often, but you know, but I have been there and, and it's, it's something that, um, is hard for me to do, but I, it's, it's a reality we live in with this disease. And, and so in doing that, that led me to considering having another child and really just bringing a bright light and joy to our family, um, that has been surrounded with a lot of darkness at times, you know, a lot of pain. That's, um, that was going to be, um, it's, it's gotta be hard. I mean, you know, just the, the, the doom and gloom is, uh, is very easy to subject any parent of special illness uh, or disease. Um, you know, I, I don't know how you, you, you kept going forward. I, what, what the listeners should know is that I, I do call upon Kristen's strength from time to time. And we do have these, um, uh, very volatile bitch sessions about life and people and places and things. And uh, you've been truly a blessing as an, and a mentor and a friend for helping me uh, get through a lot of this stuff. Um, so you got all that stuff going on. You're now pregnant and, and it, it, you recently had a new dedication of space out there in Nationwide Children's Hospital. Can you tell us a little bit about how that's going to help for future families? Um, are you talking about the lobby naming? Right. Yeah. I mean, th this is where it all began, right? Yes. At Nationwide. Okay. Yeah. So, um, they, they named the lobby after our foundation, which was quite an honor. Um, one that I, I never expected or, or knew about. Um, but I think they wanted to honor our commitment to our, our children and other children like them. And, um, you know, as a result of our clinical trial, we've had thousands of families reach out to us with children with rare diseases, many in the Batten disease space, obviously, but also outside the Batten disease space. And as a result, um, it has brought a lot of attention to Nationwide Children's Hospital and a lot of um, new work. Um, they're inundated with pediatric rare diseases now um, as a result of the work we're doing. So whether or not that was paying homage as a thank you to us, I don't, I don't know. We're honored. We love the hospital. We love the people there. Um, it's the only hospital I ever feel comfortable in, in you know, including in, even in my local um, city. I would prefer going to Nationwide. It's, it's like home to us. Um, and the girls love it and feel comfortable there. So um, and I can still call upon any of them. They're a phone call away for anything, any question, any concern, you know, advice, et cetera. That, that, that's crazy. Somebody had asked me on a previous podcast, they simply said, you know, where, where is the premier hospital? Where are people doing research? And, and being that I'm from Los Angeles, I was thinking, God, there's gotta be something here. We have so much talent, but nobody. And then they always pointed to Ohio. I mean, there was little bits and pieces here in Los Angeles, but the real bread and butter was over there. Is, is that what you found as well? I mean, they definitely have a lot of, in the gene therapy space, they're one of the main hubs. Um, and so for any family pursuing in a pediatric rare disease diagnosis gene therapy, that's one of the places that they look. Um, I think North Carolina is another place people look. Uh, Texas has become another place. Um, and Florida, um, you know, is on. And then you've got, you know, some of the ASO stuff happening in, in Boston now. So I think that there are, are certainly new areas and opportunities opening up across the country. But Nationwide has definitely done a good job of um, really covering a lot of pediatric rare diseases. And, and you just keep going and keep going. You, you're, you're one of these people that just, you know, you don't let other people do the work. I, I've, I've noticed that you and I have a lot of commonalities. I can't, I can't sit back and let somebody else do the work and then, you know, be jumping on that train. Like, yeah, we did it. Um, My husband would call that being controlling, but yes, you're right. Well, <laughs> if you want to get shit done, we got to handle it ourselves. So, but you, you took it one step further. And, and when I say about that, I mean, you've gone through the last few years of just ups and downs and a lot of crap and a lot of good stuff and a lot of bad stuff, but you seem to have put more on your plate by creating a, a school. Is it now? I 
did. I did create a school. I'm here now. Yes. Um, yeah, you know, when we got back from Columbus, there weren't a lot of options for Charlotte. She had changed a lot. Um, her needs had changed a lot. And I didn't really feel comfortable um, sending her to a public school setting um, where she would get the same treatment as a neurotypical kid. Um, she needed intensive therapeutic intervention. She needed individualized education. And, you know, for a while, I think we as parents, you probably feel the same way. You want your child in a inclusive environment where they can model up to these kids and, you know, have these normal friends and hear people and kids speaking. And I was such a big proponent of that. And then I realized, but she's the only one in her class in a wheelchair. And she's maybe one of two kids in her entire school. And she doesn't see a mirror image of herself when she's in that school setting. And that's sad. So I wanted her to be around peers that were experiencing some of the same challenges that she was. And, you know, being able to see that she's not so different from, you know, other kids. And, you know, one of the perks is that I get to be at the school with her every day. So yes, we started the Gray Academy in September of 2018, and it was for children with complex neurological disorders, traumatic brain injury, global developmental delay. So severely, moderate to severely impacted children. That's incredible. Wow. Yeah. So, and how many students do you currently have? Well, we're going to have close to 10 in the fall. Nice. Right now we are, we are small and mighty and we want to keep it that way. <laughs> kids are very involved. Um, we're TK through, through fifth grade. We're adding sixth grade next year because one of our fifth graders is aging out. So we're kind of growing as our, as our students grow. Um, and we have a great team of related service providers and teachers and, um, you know, a community of families that have been experiencing the same challenges that, you know, it's newer for us, Chris, for you and for me, you know, we had typical kids until a certain age. And so we weren't in this yep. special community from the onset. And so it's a quick, mm. it's a quick learn. You have to, you have to get, you know, caught mm. up. Um, and a lot of these families have been experiencing our challenges since birth. Um, so being able to provide a community for these families was also really important in the school. You seem like you have basically no time left in the day being a businesswoman, a, uh, <laughs> a maverick, if you will, uh, for the advocacy of anything from, Batten disease research to helping other families to creating a school to being a loving mother and a, and, a, and a wife and I know life is hard isn't it it's yeah it's it's extremely hard it's extremely challenging I mean I I was one of those people who said I'm never gonna you know need help except for you know early on you know here and there when I was working part-time as a mom before diagnosis BD I call it um and then even after diagnosis, it was hard for me, AD, Chris, it was hard for me to ask for help because I want to be able to give my full attention and self to my children, but I also need balance, right? We all need balance or we go cuckoo bananas. Um, and so I was quite grateful and lucky to have met someone when we were in Columbus that helped part-time um, while we were living there and then she wanted to move back to, to LA. And so she came back with us and lived with us for a year. And that's when I realized I really do need someone. She ended up being Charlotte's aide in school, her one-to-one -one in school. So I kind of had eyes and ears always on what was happening in that first year. Um, and then we went down the path of hiring an au pair. And I, I never wanted someone living in my space, to be honest with you, but you know, I wanted my kids to have daily support beyond what I could give um, and an expertise beyond what I could give. And so we had in our first year of having an au pair, she was a physical therapist right out of school in Germany. Amazing, an amazing experience. And Charlotte really did grow and gain strength as a result of having her in the home setting. She was also Charlotte's one-to-one -one at the school. Um, and then in our second year, another German physical therapist, equally as talented and loving and, and, and successful in working with both the girls. 
Um, she's leaving on Thursday, which makes me very sad. And we have a new au pair that's starting who's an occupational therapist. So I've had to be humbled and ask for the help. And, you know, even more so now that the baby's coming. I mean, I don't know about everyone else during this COVID crisis, but I do more dishes and laundry and I've, I hadn't cleaned a toilet in a very long time and I clean the <laughs> toilet each week and mop floors. Like I didn't even know I had to look up what you use to like what solution you make to mop a floor. Oh, I doubt that, Kristen. I'm sure that you're very well versed in cleaning houses and stuff like that. Stop. The maintaining, yes, but the deep cleaning from being <laughs> home all day, the deep every day, cooking three meals, having two snacks with the kids has been... Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's very important. I think that you touched on something about uh, asking for the help, getting the help because, you know, you you said as awesome as your life is, it's very challenging, very hard, but very rewarding time management relationships, families, other kids, work life, uh, you know, associates and stuff like that. You need to have help to have some of your time and to, to cope with this life, that has been just thrown in our lap. And how do you, how do you cope with all that stress? I mean, you talk a really great game, Kristen, you seem to have it all together. So let's get real honest here. What do you do to help yourself? I mean, because there are times when I fucking run, I run and I cry and I, and I don't have a problem saying I'm a man and I, and I, and I lose my shit. So someone like you, who's got two, and all the things that you've accomplished, how do you how do you cope with the stress? What do you and your husband do, or is it something that you do by yourself? Can you can you tell us how? I, I play paddle tennis, which is um, everyone's like, oh, do you play ping pong? It's not ping pong. It's basically like tennis on a shorter tennis court with a smaller racket and a deflated tennis ball. So I play tennis, um, and I have a great group of friends that are super supportive and get me out of the house. I can't, I haven't had a drink in nine months, obviously, because I'm pregnant, but looking forward to getting back to that is my release. <laughs> oh, come on, slow uh, it down, slow it down. A good margarita or a glass of champagne or a Pinot Noir I'm looking forward to. Um, I have very, I have a very supportive family. I surround myself with people that I love. And so I think that helps. And I, I live a little bit in denial. I mean, I, I, it's hard to look at the hard mm. reality of what my life is. Yeah. And so I tend to not, I tend to push it down. I lost my mom at 13. So I learned at a very young age to not, I didn't like the feeling of feeling depressed and sad and that dark feeling much like, you know, I think I learned it or got it from my dad. So I just kind of bury it and go about my day and try to focus on the positive because I'm, I, I will not serve my children if I stay in bed all day and cry. I just, I just won't. Um, and so I choose, I choose the alternative. Um, separately, I did just before all this COVID coronavirus stuff happened, I reached out, you know, I try to live our life as normally as I would if, my children weren't impacted. And so we go out into our community and we go out to dinner as a family and we go to the park as a family and we go for walks and, you know, we do try to do it, go on vacations and, and it's harder, it's harder to do, but we do it. Um, but what I noticed is, is I'm like, I know there's other families that have children with disabilities, but why aren't I seeing them in our community? Why, why where are they? And I know that we have these Facebook groups as support groups, but it really is a virtual support group. And so I wanted to find a community of mothers in the Palisades that are experiencing a lot of the same challenges we are, whether it be navigating IEPs, um, managing therapy, managing insurance reimbursement, um, you know, dealing with behaviors, whatever it is, seizure management. And so I found 13 women some of which I already knew in the Palisades. And we, we started a group of a support group for local women. Wow. That's great. So we've only had one meeting because then coronavirus happened, but um, you know, there was a lot of information that came out of that first meeting. You know, we're all a wealth of knowledge in our own field. And if we can share that with each other, we can all, you know, have little takeaways that might help you know, our situation. So that was kind of the goal of the group. So I'm hoping that we can get back to that once we kind of get out of this crisis. Um, 
So those are just some of the, a few of the things. And uh, Gordon, what does he do? What does he like to do to escape as a father? Because, you know, we have a few father listeners out there. And plus, I would want to know. Yeah, no, he plays paddle. He, I got him into paddle tennis as well. So every Sunday we were playing in a league. And so he plays paddle and he plays golf. He likes to golf. Uh, he likes to exercise. He's a big reader. I mean, knowledge is power for Gordon. Gordon is a sponge and a wealth of information. And I rely on him heavily for, um, you know, anything that I find, I kind of vet through him. And um, so he, yeah, he, he reads a lot. He likes to be informed. Um, what else? I, I, I mean, you know, we all like the beach. I miss the days of being able to go to the beach and just yeah. eat with us. Yeah. And you, you guys are avid skiers as well. We like to go to the mountains a couple times a year. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah. Well, that's, that's truly important. I mean, I think self-care and self-help and, and just asking is a huge step. And it seems like you have uh, quite of uh, been very accountable to yourself, it seems. And now you're getting ready for baby number three. Yes. And uh, I pray that it's a very easy delivery and there are no complications and uh, that little person that will be a new little gray. That's right. Uh, so uh, do we know the sex yet? It's a boy. All right. I bet Gordon's happy about that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, we, we got to choose. We had the choice uh, and we decided that, you know, we've had two beautiful girls and we don't need, you know, a, to recreate that experience. Um, you know, I don't want any comparisons to Charlotte and Gwen and we wanted a new experience. I mean, this was a, you know, a big decision for us. So, so yes, we both decided that a little boy would, would best serve as the new addition to our family. Well, that's fantastic. Congratulations. And we always go through that at the end. Um, you know, real quick, give us a rundown where our listeners can find, uh, any information about uh, maybe your foundation, what's coming up, what's next? I mean, how do we get in touch with Kristen Gray and the foundation? Um, yeah, curebatten, C-U-R-E-B-A-T-T-E-N.org is our website. My personal email is on there. So I think if you click on contact and contact the family, you can contact me directly. I try to respond within 48 hours. Uh, Facebook at, at curebatten, Instagram, curebatten. Um, I'm not as good at messenger on Facebook. So apologies if someone tries to messenger me, I don't know how to navigate that as well. So I just, love messenger. Just, just email me. Well, there's all those random ones where you get them from people you don't, you're I not know. friends with and you find them in an envelope that you haven't touched in years. So, um, and then gray Academy is, uh, the gray and again, contact information and phone numbers already on there. That's in Santa Monica. And happy to give anyone and everyone the platform to start their own non-public school um, because someone did that for us. So, so yeah. That's fantastic. So if somebody was listening right now and they heard all this information and uh, they were hesitant to give you a call and they just started this, you know, horrible journey, um, what would you tell them? at this point in time. I mean, we just, we just don't know what we're doing. We're scared and you know, we don't know who to listen to. What would you, what would you tell that parent? Well, I would say knowledge is power. So doing the work and making the calls is really important. I, I shared the same sentiment that I didn't really want to hear it. I didn't, it was hard for me to speak to families that had lost children because I didn't want that to be my reality. Um, and you know, I've had parents who have had friends reach out to me saying the parent isn't ready, but the friend is going to reach out and I'm always available whenever someone's ready. You know, it has to be, you know, on your own time when you're ready. But I would say in, in a lot of these pediatric rare diseases, time is life. And so the longer you wait, the more you're jeopardizing the potential, um, you know, ability to save your child. So if it's not me, you know, it can be a million other people that are, that are, you know, sharing in the same journey that, that we've been walking in. So yeah, just call everyone and anyone. That's important that you said that. Um, I had started Project Sebastian um, long before I met Kristen. We were going to cure epilepsy and uh, that was our misdiagnosis, kind of like you and I have the same story. 
where we, uh, we, we were working with um, CBD manufacturers and growers and um, looking at THC versus non-THC components and actually created two businesses and actually created a product and had a small data study, as you would say, at UCLA with uh, top officials with uh, Gervais syndrome versus Sebastian's condition. And uh, I remember uh, when I first met this family out there, they were very um, interested into hearing what we wanted. And that was different because a lot of people like to tell you what you need to do. And um, I think um, it was very simple. We just wanted to, A, have the, the ability to have conversations, and B, we wanted to just get help. And this family, the Grays, were very instrumental in helping us kind of pivot our way into creating uh, a juggernaut, if you would say, of foundations where they basically supported every aspect of the Project Sebastian Foundation and other foundations that came after that. So I just wanted to say from my family to you guys, we do love you and we do appreciate you. They did put us in touch with those same doctors that you heard about today. They did help us um, get into the right positioning for the next uh, CNL8 trials and we are indebted. So I will tell you that it does work if you work it, but you got to make that first step. And I'm so glad that we did. My wife and I at the time, who's since remarried and has a, a very healthy daughter. Congratulations mm -hmm. to her. Uh, it, things can happen even after baton disease, as you would say. What did you say? AD. So, yeah. uh, <laughs> so uh, the proof is in the pudding. And Kristen, it's just been a pleasure. I appreciate your time. I know you're very busy. And I'm glad that we got a hold of you today. So thank you for joining the the Project thank Sebastian you. podcast. Thank you for having me and thanks for all the work that you're doing. You're doing um, some pretty awesome things too. So I want to acknowledge that as well. And, and uh, you're pretty exceptional. So. Oh, well, thank you. I'm just trying to keep, keep up with you guys, the Grays. Yeah. So thank once you. again, you can find out everything about uh, Kristen and Gordon at uh, curebatten.org. Follow them on Facebook under the same name, same name on Instagram. The Gray Foundation, which is new and exciting, uh, helps children uh, suffering from these horrible diseases in the same setting, not just the, the public or the private school system, but actually a new system, as I would, I would say. It's a brand new system where people are actually there for the right reasons, and it's just not about um, all the other horrible political crap that goes on in these things about why you need to have your child there and IEPs, blah, 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 blah. Kristen is amazing in the fact that she could help you through IEPs anyway. So thank you once again. I'm babbling because I'm just, I'm just in love with the grays. So yeah, no, you guys are awesome. So thanks again, everybody for joining us. Uh, we will have this uh, amazing update, hopefully uh, in the next coming months about baby gray coming out and thank yeah. you for listening, everybody. What a great show. Thank you, Kristen. Thanks, Chris. Hey, thanks for listening again to another great episode of the Project Sebastian podcast. We do appreciate all of the people out there listening. Do us a favor, would you? Let's keep it alive by sharing this episode with another person, family, or a caregiver that may need this important information. Remember, connections are key, and you just never know who needs to hear some really great stuff. If you ever wanted to be a guest on the show, please drop us a line at info at projectsebastian.org and let us know what you're all about. Once again, thank you for listening for the Project Sebastian podcast. We'll see you next time, everybody. Thank you. <laughs>